repetition. Sometimes it's monotony. Sometimes it's ritual. Take rewatching a movie over and over. No matter how much you like it, at its worst, it can drive you crazy. But at its best, you can find comfort, camaraderie, perhaps even deeper meaning. Welcome to Cinema Credo, conversations on film and faith. I'm Adam Glass. Strength and mercy for me, and from me every day. Life and light will bleed into love. I'm Stephen Goldmeyer. I'm a lawyer, public defender, uh, working in New York City, used to live in Columbus, Ohio. I was born and raised uh, as an Orthodox Jewish individual in an Orthodox Jewish household, uh, sort of a, a modern Orthodox Jewish, but more modern in some ways and more Orthodox in other ways. And I am no longer affiliated with any of that. Uh, I used to have very strong, unshakable belief and now I have strong, unshakable doubt. And, uh, you know, <laughs> the, they interplay with each other in interesting ways as I'm getting older and older. Uh, and that might be why I chose Groundhog Day as the movie to talk about, because I think there's a lot of that stuff there. Yeah. Yeah, there is. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Uh, Groundhog Day, as, uh, as a philosophical or religious interpretation, uh, a lot of different backgrounds can uh can see things that they associate with their with their uh you know in group right <laughs> thinking right there's there's valid Buddha, buddhist interpretations a lot of people see reincarnation there's uh there's uh christian and jewish sources that see that see things and uh you know it's it's a wide swath there was a uh, Theologian named Michael P. Foley, uh, writing in Touchstone Magazine, uh, says that one one sort of reason for that, uh, in his view, uh, is that uh, uh, Ramus himself has uh, director Harold Ramus has uh, ambiguous religious <laughs> beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, as uh, an agnostic, raised Jewish, and married to a Buddhist, uh, right. and suggests that uh, you know. Uh, the film just has a, uh, you know, he he says when when not vu- viewed through a single herme- hermeneutical lens, um, it's a stunning allegory of moral, intellectual, and even religious excellence in the face of postmodern decay. Right, a sort of Christian Aristotelian pilgrim's progress for those lost in the contemporary cosmos. Uh, I I read that too. Yeah, <laughs> I saw that uh, exact sentence as well. <laughs> yeah, it's something, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's something. It's the sentence is something, but I think I think really what it boils down to is that uh, it doesn't even necessarily have a spirituality to it. Obviously, there's something supernatural going on right. within the film, right? Uh, but the supernatural isn't necessarily important. We're not we're not investigating that mystery, right? That's not part of the movie. You know, we, in fact, it's, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, changes were made to the movie to make that less explicit. Right? Yeah, to, That's to maintain right. maintain it being mysterious. So it's more of a, not necessarily even a spirituality, but more of a uh, the base humanism of all those religions, right? right. The basic. Uh, empathy and growing as a person to to understand the world outside yourself and accept the world outside yourself. I think, but um, that's enough of me talking about the movie. <laughs> I think why? Uh, yeah. Why? Why did you pick this movie? So I I picked this movie for it's very related to the things you were just saying. So the movie, you know, on its. Uh, uh, I've said on some of the other appearances I've made on other podcasts of yours, and not to un- yeah. anyone who will listen, <laughs> I'm very interested in the intersection of sort of like accessible, uh, tropey, um, simple art 
things like a romantic comedy, for instance, the intersection mm -hmm. of something like that with something that's sort of off kilter or surprising. Um, you know, so magical realism uh, mixed with this romantic comedy is like very interesting to me. Um, you know, and, and there are other examples of, of even weirder stuff getting mixed into genre movies. I just saw um, You Were Never Really Here, I think it's called, the Joaquin mm -hmm. Phoenix movie last night, which is such a great example of like a tropey, like revenge genre action movie that just has this really surreal, psychological, interesting stuff mixed in with it. So I'm very interested in using sort of tropey, accessible human experiences to talk about bigger things. And Groundhog Day is such a good example of this. And, you know, as you mentioned, you can really drag a lot of different things out of this movie based off of what you bring in. Um, and the fact that it is so accessible means that really anybody can approach it and find right. something and then come away from it, you know, to talk about it in some way. Um, which means that it also holds up to repeat viewings from somebody who, let's just say theoretically, started as a very orthodox Jew when they first started watching it and is yeah. a very serious sort of uh, uh, agnostic kind of person later in life can find things all along that spectrum spectrum that are interesting uh, in this movie. Right. Right. And, uh, you and I have seen this movie a lot. Yeah. This so. is the movie I've seen more than any other movie. Um, yeah. there's no question that's true for a while. I wasn't sure that that was true. So the other thing that uh, people either know or don't know about me, depending on sort of where they've intersected with me, you'll definitely know this. <laughs> I enjoy repeating things. Um, yes. I enjoy watching the same things over and over. I enjoy going to the same restaurant over and over. Um, and you'll also know it's not because I'm afraid of change. Um, but, you know, whatever sort of whatever was teased into me at, in my Orthodox Jewish upbringing about like, you know, ritual and right. uh, and habits and repetition sort of becoming your observance of sort of self-improvement um, you know, that's really carried over into like, you know, the first time I saw Finding Nemo, I watched it three times in a row, for instance, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Talking about ritual with this film. Yeah, that's uh, right. Stephen and I, for many years, uh, attended a 24-hour marathon uh, on or around the holiday of Groundhog Day, uh, in which we watched this film 12 times in a row with about 20-minute breaks in between showings. Uh I don't know that I recommend doing that. Yeah, <laughs> it is uh, it is thematically appropriate to to the film to sort of experience it multiple times. Uh, the The marathon itself was meant to be a challenge by the organizers, right? So it's not. Yeah. I don't. I have never felt like I've gotten a deeper understanding of the film having watched it 12 times in a row than I might have gotten watching it 12 days in a row. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so but... I, I can say I all, I did feel transformed by those experiences. Okay. Yeah. And it's not necessarily, it doesn't really have to do with like, oh, I've really thought about it a lot because I've watched it so many times. You know, there's this sort of underappreciated thing in human nature where if you do things a lot of times, you develop a fondness for it really no matter what it is. Yeah. Um, and it could have been anything. And it's just so lucky that it was a movie that's about the joy of repetition that really unlocked in me this feeling of like the utter joy of repetition, especially in a community. So repetition in a community is kind of like the most um, cold way of describing sort of religious ritual, yes. <laughs> you know? So it really did. No, no. It helped me recapture a feeling of joy in something like religious ritual in a context that was not religious at all that I right. hadn't really felt in a lot of years. No, in watching this alone last night, uh, for the first time since the last marathon I went yeah. to, it was a off-puttingly different experience almost. Yeah. Um, I joked on, I, I tweeted out that when I first put on the film and as the, as the opening music started, that tuba of the introduction, yeah. uh, I was sort of filled with this feeling of both dread and euphoria. Yeah. And, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, I said that to be funny, but it wasn't a joke. Right, right. right. <laughs> it, it very much was that feeling because in hearing that music, I am thinking about that experience of both staying up for 24 hours and of the the com camaraderie, the, the joy of being in a group of people having fun watching this thing 
experiencing this thing together. And uh, yeah. yeah, it it definitely your description of it as religious ritual with with a wholly unreligious thing uh, yeah. is is accurate. It's you know one thing in watching it alone last night that I missed was you know yelling the joke, yelling. saying the lines, and yeah. having people appreciate that happening. Like I'm not right. just you know I'm not, I'm not going to yell ooh sick burn. Uh, <laughs> about uh, Chris Elliott's character saying, "Yeah, the the shop, home shopping network." Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> when I'm alone in my living room and my roommate's asleep, that's, I know, man. That's not a great idea. So but, uh, I, wa- I I live alone. Uh, yeah, and so Lucky was probably confused that I was yelling things <laughs> at the screen while it was happening. It's very yeah. weird. So, if uh, one comparison that I would make with this is so. You know, in in, uh, Yom Kippur services for Jews, Mm -hmm. there's this point near the end of it. um, You've sort of gone almost 24 hours of like almost constant praying and, you know, fasting and things like that. And there's this point near the end where there's this last service you do that everybody uses sort of the same tune or strain to sing the opening call to the to the prayer service and you're supposed to mm-hmm. stand through the whole thing because you've just like been worn out by this whole experience but it's your last hurrah and so you want to really be in it to really maximize on it and in that context you want to maximize your fear of god and of the consequences of your actions um but those opening strains are so much like the call to the very last prayer of Yom Kippur services because it's like the last call in this 24-hour period to do this thing together. Um, So, yeah, it really, nothing, you know, but it's without the fear part. So it's like, uh, to me, just like a huge relief. It's like having that same childhood experience, but in a way that is not burdened with the way that I was taught Judaism, for instance, you know, it's right. like a, yeah, so that, that comparison, I'm not saying it as like a fun joke, like, oh, it's like Yom Kippur oh, services. Yeah. I remember the feeling of those services and the last showing of Groundhog Day during the marathon just felt like that, like yeah. exactly like it. <laughs> and you, you and I have talked before around uh, public experiences, concerts, films, right. uh, uh, emulating corporate worship and 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 religious services and you know at, at times you re- starting to recognize that it being making you uncomfortable i think uh, in in certain certain concerts that we went to yes um where you were beginning to recognize that sort of hero worship and and how how that was emulating um religious practice that you were moving away from that's right yes yeah definitely uh <clears throat> But at the same time, that that community is strengthening. It's it's important for people to be together, right? For for various reasons. Um, yeah, and you know that's one reason religion exists is because people coming together is is important. Uh, but uh, but you can come together over something like this too. Yeah, so I, I do find it really interesting, you know, and I, I don't I don't know that I disagree with you saying it's important for communities to be able to come together in this way. I, I will say that I wouldn't profess to know enough about what is important and not important, but what I would say is it's enjoyable, right? It's yes. uh, there's something that's pleasurable as a human to come together in this way. And I, in the past, have fallen into toxic ways of coming together in this way, right? Yes, And so this, watching this movie, thinking about it, going to that marathon is a sort of communal ritual that I feel is not toxic. It's, you know, it's not laden with any sort of problematicness or, um, you know, it's a way of sort of surrendering to a community that isn't going to uh, ever take advantage of that surrender to the community and use it against you, right? Because yeah. it's just structured in such a way that that can't happen. Um, anyway, yeah. So yeah, I, I'm I'm interested in the idea of you know. Uh, I'm here not as a studier of uh, theology and religion. I'm 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 here as a person who's just thought a lot about the cultural things that I enjoy doing, and yeah. it's taken me some time to get comfortable with the idea that you can scratch the same itches that religion scratch some of them that religion scratches with these kind of cultural experiences, and it doesn't have to be a sort of important theological experience for it to be a religious like or even religious full stop 
experience. It doesn't have to be as theologically laden to feel, you know, spiritually important, even if you don't, even if you don't believe in the spiritual at all, you know, you can still experience these, these feelings. Yeah. Now from there, uh, we do have sort of the, uh, um, the a-religious interpretations of this movie where we start to talk about Carl Jung and, and Nietzsche. Yeah. Uh, which I think are certainly fair interpretations too. Uh, sure. W- yeah. One of the things, you know, we've got, uh, who's the other writer? Harold Ramis and, uh, Danny Rubin, Danny Rubin. And I think, I think Rubin has said that they just wanted to make a fun movie. And 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 it it got more intellectual, more. <laughs> but but I yeah, don't. So I've, I've read a lot about that whole thing. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, read I have his book. Read I read Danny Rubin's that. book about Groundhog yeah. Day. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. Um, but I think, purposeful or not, a lot of things have ended up in this movie. Right, Young's idea, the shadow. The shadow self and and uh, Phil's character confronting his shadow self and and realizing realizing his own darkness and and the effect darkness is having on other people and in that manner seeing his shadow. Um, but there's also you know, Nietzsche's idea of uh, eternal return um, and uh, the idea that. Uh, you know Nietzsche. Nietzsche gets a bad, bad rap in a lot of religious circles. That whole yeah. "God is dead" thing kind of kind of threw people off. Sure, uh, but uh, but it's not it's not wholly nihilistic. You know the, Nietzsche's idea of eternal return is uh, you know he's he's drawing on more ancient sources too. He's not coming up with this whole cloth. Um, the idea of eternal return. Uh, that all of time is repetitious, uh, and uh, and he couples that with uh, the idea of amor fatal. Uh, it's uh, I'm sure I'm saying it wrong, but it's Latin. Uh, the uh, the love of fate uh, mm-hmm. and and leaning into to fate, uh, accepting every Nietzsche ties this into accepting suffering um, of yourself. Um, I'd be hard pressed to say that Nietzsche was saying to check out of the world and uh, and accept suffering all around you. Uh, I hope he wasn't, but <laughs> right. Uh, but an acceptance of everything happening to you, um, which itself is a, a Christian religious sentiment too. Uh, Paul talks about it in Romans five, I think, uh, rejoicing in suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And I think Nietzsche is 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 talking about that hope, and in in the idea of amor fatal, coupled with that is an idea of living the life that you wouldn't mind living again, right? If 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 everything is cyclical, live a life that you're going to have joy in uh, recreating on the next cycle. Um, now that's where Nietzsche starts, I think, to to leave philosophy and get into religion, as as nebulous as those right. those concepts are, uh, when they start sliding up against each other. Uh, though there have been there have been scientists who who claim they've proven <laughs> uh, eternal return uh, mathematically, but. Mm. Uh, I don't know that we can really trust them. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I'm I'm interested in that in that kind of stuff, but it's very similar to this movie in that, like, you know, if you structure it right, people can walk into it with really any kind of mathematical processing and come out with a conclusion. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I'm very interested in in all the different ways. People can come with to this with with right. their own baggage and and discover different things and reinforce ideas and be challenged on ideas and yeah yeah so you know at, uh, the main thing that I sort of bring away from this and it has to do with this sort of like bearing suffering and uh, finding the hope around it um, 
as someone who's you know spent my whole legal career as a public defender and working in yeah. public defender offices, you know, um, we are sort of in a difficult place, uh, the criminal justice system, and we are sort of participants in it, and really the only key place where a participant is invited in to try to make it better. But what that means is we just lose a lot. You know, yeah. it, it really took me a while to figure out you know, the relationship between those sort of repeated losses and my theory of change for how to make the world a better place, but also how to square my own feelings about those losses with the work that I do every day. Um, and this movie, it, it offers a lot of fuel for that, you know, that like one of the things that I say a lot at work is we need to be doing the right thing even when nobody is watching. Um, right. You know, it's not, that is a very like, usually people would couch that in, religious terms right you should be doing the right thing because a somebody's always watching right even when nobody's watching um or b you know uh you have a duty right to others even when nobody's watching however you want to sort of phrase it right um just the sort of repeated reminder this movie makes of like you have to find the thing that is the right thing to do for you and for those around you even when you know there will never be consequences for doing it the right way or the wrong way. You'll right. never be rewarded for doing the right thing. You'll never be punished for doing the wrong thing. You just have to really work hard and be mindful and figure out what the right thing is to keep doing it, even knowing, you know. And I, I, that is so different from the way that I was raised in religion. You know, right. there was a very clear sense in the type of Orthodox Judaism I was taught of, like, do the right thing because you will be rewarded. And... Don't do the wrong thing because you'll be punished. We're just very central to the way I was taught Orthodox Judaism. And this movie is like such a great way of uh, transitioning out of that and into pick your poison on how you want to phrase it. But just the new way of thinking of like you still need to do the right thing even when nobody is watching. Right. Even when you you don't think there's any reward associated with it. Um, and, you know, I read some articles talking about some some Aristotelian stuff, you know, of like becoming the ideal person and yeah. and all that stuff. And, I you know, I don't understand any of it. Right. But what I do understand <laughs> is like Phil Connors just had to like iterate a lot and keep trying to figure out what was going to be the right thing for him to right. just do it. And that I understand. That makes a lot of sense to me. You just keep trying. You make small changes. You'd be better today than you were the day before, whatever that means to you, until you have found the version of yourself that you feel happy to be. You know, right. and that that works for me. I, you know, I get a little lost in like the in like the young and 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 uh, and the the theology and, yeah. and Buddhism, but I don't get lost thinking of it in ter- the terms that Groundhog Day uses. So it just right. really it works for me, right? No, that's 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 very good. And you know, and and thinking about the situation that Phil's character is in, uh, that final day that we see, that that final February second that yeah. we see, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't know that that's, that's an right. end. Exactly right. This is just the life he's living now. And he he has found the life that makes him the most happy in that moment, right? Uh, but he's found the life that makes the community happy too and those around him and his neighbors. Now that does also involve letting go of things he can't change, of pops. Sure. Right? 100%, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there, uh, if you think of sort of structurally the stuff that happens with um, – with the the old homeless man who he calls basically dad, right? Yeah. Um, if you look at this, like you know, he refers to like the children on the street as being his children. It's, at one point, he refers to the own the owner of the bed and breakfast as mom, and he refers to this homeless guy as dad, right? So, yeah. you know, um, if you really wanted to like unpack a lot of really interesting psychological stuff, there's stuff to do there. But anyway, yeah. Um, uh, so, but yeah, just structurally, the moment that happens with the old man dying and him having to make peace with that is after he gets out of the 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 toxic cycle, right? right. It's after the slapping, after sort of realizing that Rita's just never. It's you know, it's after the the. There's it's such a key moment in the movie when he wakes up, he looks out the window, and he just like straightens his pajamas and says, "All right, I'm just gonna do my day now." That is just. 
it's such a transition point in the movie. And, it, you know, you can sort of think of, like, the police chase on the railroad tracks as a big transition, and it's like a big set piece, and sort of like an act transition in sort mm-hmm. of a classic screenwriting sense. You know, and, like, him driving the cliff off the cliff with a car is a big action sort of uh, transition. But the real linchpin turning point of the movie is the moment where, for the first time, he wakes up and is just like, well, this is how I live now better just live it but what's so interesting about it is that him having to make peace with that he cannot no matter how much he can sort of control his surroundings he cannot control all of it and that happens after he's sort of like made peace and i think that's such an honest thing for a movie to do is be like we've met we've passed the turning point where where phil connors is finally making peace with his world but he's still going to get challenged by it in these really brutal ways even after he's decided this is how it's going to work he's still going to get hit by these very brutal things um in an earlier draft of the screenplay it might actually have been the shooting script um they and it's left out of the final movie one of his daily rituals that he arrives at but you know before the the final sort of day um is that he would go to the the homeless man who's dying and he would just sit with him because he knew he was going to die that day and so he would just sit with him and then he'd leave a note in the pocket that had some poetry or something like that about sort of how you know death is inevitable or whatever and then these cops would discover the body with the note and read it and be like yeah that makes me feel better somehow so that all is really like on the nose and i think a little too schmaltzy for what the movie (laughs) actually is but it is i think you know, in sort of the universe of the movie, that it makes a lot of sense that's something that Phil would do, right? Because he has had to really struggle, even after coming up with the perfect worldview, quote-unquote, he still has had to struggle so much and adjust all these little things to make himself okay, even past his revelation. And that's just right. so honest, you know, about right. the human experience and sort of, you know, the religious experience, too, is having to really just adjust to all of it's not going to stop being hard once you make the decision to like pick a world view you know right right yeah i found that and i found that so interesting you know like there's it's this movie is so like right on the border of of like just too preachy about its message of like self-improvement and stuff like that or on the other side of being too like romantic comedy ish and you know like too cutesy for its own good um and it there are times where it teeters one side or the other um throughout the movie but it always manages to sort of correct itself enough that it is very satisfying i think the there's a a third point of that teetering too it also avoids being too dark definitely yeah Definitely. So you mentioned it earlier, but that was a lot of the fighting that was going on during the writing of this movie was, you know, um, uh, a lot of people who talk about all these hidden things like Gus uh, in the in the uh, diner being sort of uh, St. Augustine or something like that, you know, (laughs) fine. Listen, you know, it's fine. I'm not saying it's it's definitely not in the movie, (laughs) but that's a really... um, that's a that's a, a lot to expect from a movie that was literally being written as it was being filmed. You know, right. like this was not carefully assembled out of allegory and religious thought and right. philosophy. Right. It was just written like what feels right. And it it's just like all of these things. We're just very lucky that what felt right to everybody turned out to create this really miraculously good product. Um, but it really was you know, being like written and then handed like under a door to somebody like this is what you're going to act today. You know, Bill Murray being like, I don't want to act this and writing notes on it and putting it back under the door and saying, this is what I'm going to act instead. (laughs) You know, I don't know in that kind of an environment, if it makes sense to think, you know, like, oh, they put Gus's name that way on purpose. Maybe. I don't know. You know, but (laughs) I wouldn't put money on it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's... If you want to make an argument that there are are subtler allusions to religion in here, I think most of them are accidental, right? I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. Gus being Gus's name and and any correlation to Augustine, I think that's that's a great coincidence. Uh, And if you you latch on to that and see that, that's wonderful. Yes. Uh, Please exploit it for all the joy you can get out of (laughs) it, right? Like, definitely, please enjoy it. But, like, it doesn't have to be purposeful to be enjoyable, you know? Right, right. (laughs) Anyway. That's in in watching 
in watching this movie this time, I I had uh, two two thoughts pop up uh, pop into mind that I've never had in watching this movie before. Nice. Yeah, I uh, love it. And, you, we, to, and we have watched this movie together literally a hundred times. Yes, so. indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, one, uh, I think uh, if we're talking about subtle subtle religious uh, overtones. Uh, Larry's, uh, if you need help with the other cheek question, when, when, yeah. uh, <laughs> so good. When Phil, when Phil insists that, uh, Rita slap him. Rita, do me a favor. I need someone to give me a good, hard slap in the face. How's that? Good. If you need any help with the other cheek, let me know. I'm right here. Right. Like this very subtle invitation for him yes, to, to turn, turn the, the other, other cheek. cheek. So yes. good. I had never thought uh, of that. That's so yeah. good. Yeah. I love that. Um, There's a lot of that stuff that's some more obvious than others, definitely. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And they reveal themselves as time goes on. Yeah. The uh, I would the love other... it if that's purposeful. But again, being very right. honest, it's not, un- it's not clear if right. it's purposeful. <laughs> and it doesn't need to be. Yeah, that's it's right. great even if it's not. That's right, right exactly. Right. Uh, the, other, the other thought I had this time uh, is it's a little more meta film. Uh, you know, there's, there's all the various theories of, of what causes the time loop and who's right. behind it and what power is behind it. Uh, there, uh, the morning, the first, the first repeat. Mm-hmm. Um, no, not even the first repeat. The first day, the okay. first day. Uh, you know, he uh, Phil comes out to to do his news report and uh, and says something about uh, weather reports from a giant squirrel. Yeah. Sorry, folks. Six more weeks of winter. This is one time where television really fails to capture the true excitement of a large squirrel predicting the weather. I, for one, am very grateful to have been here. From Punxsutawney, this is Phil Connors. So long. Okay, we'll try it again without the sarcasm. We got it. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And it was in that moment that I first thought, oh, wait. Yeah, no. this whole movie I, is about trying it again without the sarcasm. Without the sarcasm. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah stuff like that. It happens, I think, every time I watch this movie, you know, things yeah. that are um, uh, it. And I think, again, it, it has a lot more to do with like people just kept, you know, the process of filmmaking is a lot like the process of enjoying a movie and a lot yeah. of like living life, too. And that it really is about like remembering your core principles and just making decisions based off of the core principles. It doesn't have to be perfect. But, you know, you just iterate and keep trying until things get closer and closer to what you'd like them to be, closer to what you are, your core principles are. And yeah. so leaving aside the fact that the sort of three main collaborators on this movie had slightly different core principles of what the movie would be because they were all challenging each other to keep reaching for their core principles, those kinds of accidents, you know, are sort of, it's, uh, are going to happen. Even if they're not purposeful, it just makes sense that things like that are going to happen because everybody's just pushing each other back towards these core principles of what the movie is. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. thing is, I, I, when I said literally a hundred times, you know, I mean literally in this sort of figurative sense because it's literally more like 30 or 40 times. But um, uh, the thing that is so, so, so weird to me is I still have that like euphoric burst of like, yes, this is it. This is happening. Um, uh, like the like the first time that he wakes up and brings pastries yeah. Uh, you know, like he's like that turning point where he stands up, straightens his pajamas and brings pastries to everybody. I still have that feeling of like, yes, yeah. he has changed as a person, you know, anyway. Although I don't know that it's honest to say he's changed as a person. What's really changed is his habits and the way he thinks about his habits. He hasn't necessarily right. changed as a person, which I, again, I think is very, very honest about how people change right it's actually your habits that change not you as a person that changes right anyway i still like i said i just that feeling of yes i love this movie i still get it after 
you know, so many times watching this movie, I still a couple times during the movie get that feeling of like, this movie is the best. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I have a question for you, actually. Sure. So, you know, I'm, I'm, um, there are certain areas in which I'm pretty, you know, book smart, uh, and I've read all the sources you're supposed to read to be able to talk about <laughs> subjects, right? Yeah. Certain areas. Um, philosophy, religion, those are not my areas. And so I would love to hear, if you have a way of explaining to me that would make sense to me, why people use this phrase like postmodern decay and that Phil represents postmodern decay. Um, and this movie is him sort of like pushing back against that. So I have a loose sense of what postmodernism is, but this yeah. phrase just keeps, especially in that sentence you said earlier, keeps like nagging at me. Like there's something I'm not understanding. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So um, postmodernism in inaccurate sense of the word postmodernism is just the philosophical world we live in after modernism and modernism was the last movement that really had a name and postmodernism sort of blanketly covers everything after 1930. Right. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm there. I'm with you so right. far. <laughs> uh, but within, because of what modernism was and therefore postmodernism is, it's a pushback against established authority, right? Modernism sure. comes out of, uh, late 19th century and uh, World War One, where all of the institutions of humanity, of Western humanity in particular, when we talk about, you know, it's just how the West talks about philosophy. It really right. only means Western philosophy. Understood. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but all of the institutions failed. Uh they weren't protecting people. This was the war to end all wars. Uh, so there was a rejection of those old standards, a rejection of monarchy, a rejection of church hierarchy, uh, even more so than what had already been going on with, with Protestantism. And, right. Uh, uh, but a rejection of, of, you know, that sort of, you know, Europe Europe up until World War One, and, and even into the future would still would still be Christian, more or less. Um, and mm -hmm. then moving forward from that, you know, you, you start to let go of, of that and enter into secularism. And when a theologian, I'm not really familiar with Michael P. Foley um, or with Touchstone Magazine, so I can't, yeah. I can't say where they might be coming from. Uh, according to Wikipedia, Touchstone is a conservative, ecumenical Christian publication. And what that means is uh, that they are conservative leaning, but still ecumenical in, you know, they're, they're broad, you know, they want to speak conservatively for mm. uh, conservative Catholics, conservative Protestants, conservative Orthodox. Um, they're ecumenical in that they are still trying to be widespread. Right. Uh, but, well, but so they are still on the conservative end. So when conservatives yeah. in particular, uh, but perhaps uh, religious in, in more general, Western religious especially, talk about postmodernism, it is always it is always a complaint. Right. <laughs> right? I was about to say, I think of postmodernism yeah. as the kind of thing that has like, you know, um, saved a lot of very marginalized people from really <laughs> right. shitty fates. Right. Right. Um, and so seeing this phrase, postmodern decay, is always, you know, I'm just yeah. confused by it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so a lot of that definition of postmodernism gets tied up into the the conservative religious complaints about Nietzsche uh, that I mentioned earlier, that, right. that God is dead thing. Mm -hmm. um, though Nietzsche's whole point was that we've created a society that has killed God, that, uh, that um, has actively worked against whatever, <laughs> whatever right. ideas of God we, are, we had already agreed upon. Hmm. Um, I, and... Uh, at least that's that was my understanding when I read the full context of that bit. I, sure. I can't no, that makes the sense. author, et cetera. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah. so again, you know, I, I, I've been accused of being like the ultimate postmodernist, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
you know that that things really only have the meaning meaning that we assign to them, and sort mm-hmm. of the, the the meaning and value of things depends on how they are used and what they're bringing yeah. to the structures of society and and stuff like that, right? And so, um, I, yeah, I'm, I was really interested to you know. Yeah. Anyway, there's just a lot of conversations going along in the sort of theological and right. religious spaces that I don't understand, you yeah. know? <laughs> and so, so <laughs> but so when that makes use, a lot more sense to when me. When people use postmodern like that, they're really talking about modernism more than they're talking about anything postmodern. Uh, right. Modernism is where is where they're complaining about and the, the people and ideas that came out of modernism. Right. And that is that rejection of, of hierarchy, that right. rejection of expertise, Sort of, but not. I, I mean that. I don't want to get into it for fake sort of sort of hegemonical expertise, right? Yeah, like, right, um, right. Expertise as a power structure. Anyway, yeah. Um, now, now, where postmodernism sort of diverges from modernism, to me, is that with modernism, that rejection left a void that a lot of people filled with uh, cultural appropriation. Yeah, <laughs> that it was. It was. It was. Uh, well, the Christianity has, has failed us, so let's get into a uh, a very baseline understanding of Eastern philosophy, and that'll be my thing now. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you know, in a lot of ways, this is that's one thing that's kind of confusing to me about this is this this movie could really be read as like uh, an appropriation of Buddhist thought as a way yeah. of rejecting even mo- even modernism, right? So this could be yeah. seen as a very postmodern exercise in some ways so it's interesting to see someone say that it's like a demonstration of like a rejection of postmodern decay when i sort of see it possibly as an enactment of sort of postmodernism um you know nothing matters except for the meaning that we give it you know (laughs) anyway uh i don't know it it can get i guess it can get kind of messy especially if you're not talking in sort of a formal sort of academic sense about these things which I'm, I never really am. So. Right, right. And, and, and certainly, I'm, you know, I, if, uh, if the people who use postmodernism as a, uh, as a cudgel yeah. so often, yeah, yeah. Um, who use that term uh, as, as a way to beat back against ideas that they're feel for, uh, fearful of, um, were, you know, absolutely honest with themselves, I think I think postmodernism, uh, in most senses of of the use, is something where you know you're you're reexamining what you have been told is ultimate truth and what you ha- have accepted as right. ultimate truth, right, right, right. Or, and as immutable ultimate truth, right. Um, so you know, in that regard, I. I'm postmodern right there with you. Yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's questioning of uh, what you've been taught, of what you've received, and particularly in an environment when you've received those ideas as right. the only way, right? Right. As a child, <laughs> yeah. a lot yeah. of times. Yeah. 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 That, that's a big part of this, right? It's like, it's... Um, I I probably I don't know if I saw this movie as a child, but if I'd seen it as a child, I would I would not have been in a mindset that would have been able to appreciate it as anything yeah. other than like a sort of like clever romantic comedy, um, you know? Yeah, that's where a lot of these sort of received wisdoms are created is in right. childhood. <laughs> right. I, one thing that I do find really interesting about the commentary around this movie, when you take it from a religious perspective, you know, is like for a lot of these commentaries to be true and to really serve as like the perfect analysis of this movie you have to believe that ice sculpture and piano playing are like some of the idealized ethical pursuits of humanity (laughs) right you know and so i'm very skeptical of these reads that are like he is he is pursuing the like ideal sort of non-egotistical pursuit right 
I consider learning to ice sculpt a very egotistical pursuit, right? In right. some ways, because you enjoy doing Especially it. Especially when you're doing it live in front of people. That's right. That is, that is certainly egotistical. And even, right. and even in the last moments, one of the last sort of scenes before he achieves this like almost nirvana or whatever you want to call it, one yeah. of the last jokes he makes is, Rita says something like, you know, I paid top dollar for you and it was a, a bargain or something like that. And he says, yeah, you're probably right. Which is him saying, I'm worth a lot. I'm the best, yeah. right? Yeah. So even in these like perfect moments, he's saying these kind of egotistical things, right. which is really central to the, the value I see in this movie, which is like, you know, the, the idealized form of whatever you're trying to live as a human being just has to take into account, like, what do you enjoy doing? Not just yeah. what's good for the whole community, how can you be self but also like enjoying things yeah is a, a piece of sort of like the best way to live in this world that in certain strains of orthodox judaism is not necessarily emphasized to children when it's taught to them so right. i wasn't necessarily taught as a child you know the world is for you to enjoy i was actually taught the world is for you to ignore because you have a soul that's more important than your body yeah um you know and, and i'm not saying that's how all people are taught religion but, um, you know, the, the, to me, the one that really sums this up is, like, he, Phil is finding joy in, like, lighting a woman's cigarette and, you yeah. know, um, putting a tire, uh, tire on a car, but also in playing piano for a crowd, you know, yeah. and ice sculpting um, and things like that, yeah. um, that you can really mix all these different things together in a way that if you create sort of a stable version of the world you want to live in and the world that like you were saying you the the life you would want to live over and over um yeah. it's not total asceticism you know it's uh right. anyway i find that whole approach uh, more workable <laughs> as a human yeah. being than some of the ones i was taught as a child right and and some of what i was taught as a yeah. child you know long long through christianity there has been uh there's been ideas of uh, a holy spiritual heaven versus uh, what what gets called now kingdom work. Um, mm-hmm. So you know when uh, when Jesus teaches his disciples to to pray, they ask, "Well, how can we pray?" And he gives the the form of of what we know, what we call now the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the lines in the Lord's Prayer is uh, you know asking God, "Your kingdom come." and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm-hmm. And the last image of Revelation, the last book of the Christian scriptures, is that heaven coming to earth. And I think there, there is a spirituality to that that particularly pops up beginning during, uh, in America, uh, during the mid-18th, mid-19th century and earlier, to sort of absolve people who have been calling themselves Christians of the horrors that exist in their shadow. Mm. And that's another, another sort of interpretation of seeing your shadow, is seeing, seeing how what you're doing affects people behind you in your wake, right? Mm-hmm. That you, need to, you need to recognize, do what makes you happy, but do what makes you happy where your shadow is not falling and darkening someone else's world. Um, but... Uh, you know, and, and in particular, growing out of American slavery, we get this very spiritualized heaven of heaven being a place of escape uh, to get to later. And I think during during any any religious group that has faced trauma, particularly mind blowing, all encompassing trauma, right, uh, tends to to view that because it is it is hard to hang on to that hope in the moment when the moment is all blackness without saying, well, to die is gain. At least I get to escape this. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. But at the same time, there is, there is the Christianity that says your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven to that, that, uh, that the good news of, of the, the gospel. And that's what the word gospel means. Good news is dragging heaven into existence on earth. And that's uh, maybe that's postmodern of me, <laughs> a postmodern interpretation of Christianity coming from me. But that's that's where I've settled. That yeah. we need we need to act in a way where uh, you know so much 
so much of the conservative Christianity that I came out of was uh, the world doesn't matter because Jesus is going to come back. And what I have, what have I learned, uh, what I have arrived at in, in my Christianity is that if Jesus is coming back, I'd like him to come to a place where he says, wow, guys, you've made me feel right at home. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that's an, that's, I like that way of thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So, you know, uh, I'm obviously coming from a different perspective than maybe a number of people on your right. religion podcast are going to come from. Right. Which is that nobody's coming back. Heaven isn't real. Right. So, right. Um, which makes most ways of thinking about religion very challenging for me. Right. Um, but the ones that always resonate with me are like, there are people who are suffering. Let's make them suffer less. You know, right. um, the world is not perfect. Let's just do little things to try to make it a little better. Those are the kinds of sentiments that in the forms of Judaism and Christianity and Buddhism and really and Islam and all the different religions that have this in there, they're all in there, right? Right. Um, they're not necessarily as mainstreamed in all religions. Right. Um, and I think that's a really a big reason why this movie uh brings out those instincts in all religions because they're there in every religion. Um, you know, this idea that, that, that it's worth improving ourselves and our world um, is just, it's such a basic thing and it's just such a part of all religious, uh, religious sort of worlds. And right. it, it, you know, anyway, it's just so interesting to see that like I, when I read someone saying the movie has these really Jewish values in it, my first thought was, no, it doesn't. It just doesn't, you know? It just doesn't. Um, and so the parallels I've seen have talked about um, uh, tikkun olam, fixing the world, you know, yeah. being sort of a religious, a Jewish value. True. Um, that's definitely true. But then there's these other religious values that are primarily taught to the more orthodox among Jewish people, um, that that's not really top of, top of mind. Um, yeah. Or the idea that, like, doing mitzvahs is, like... Uh, really central to Judaism. Um, okay, sure. Uh, but mitzvah doesn't mean good deed. You know, it means obligation. So yeah. um, I don't know that I would think of ice sculpting as an obligation. So anyway, so, you know, I don't really see the parallels that people are, but of course the people who are taking advantage, not, uh, not really taking advantage of, but seeing and talking about those parallels are always sort of like the modern maybe even postmodern versions <laughs> of each yeah. of these religions being like, uh, yeah, this, this sort of fixing the world and trying to be better each day and really engaging with the world around us. Um, seeing that as a central philosophy is, I, I don't think common to a lot of these much more um, conservative, uh, certainly Orthodox Judaism kind of yeah. ways of thinking about things. No. And I think it's that's... just always a rabbi from some, you know, um, reform synagogue or something, right? If you yes. see an Orthodox rabbi talking about it, it's like, yeah, there definitely are some mitzvahs in this movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Whereas you see a Buddhist saying, like, well, you know, reincarnation, repet okay, that's actually a better fit, maybe, than Orthodox Judaism. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but. But at the same time, I think if we if we grew up within a. a, a a highly orthodox, uh, Buddhistic, uh, yeah, <laughs> viewing. You'd say, well, he's not really dying. He's not being born as That's something right. new. So it's not That's really right. reincarnation. His so. nirvana is falling in love with a woman. This is yeah. heresy, right? Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. You're right. Yeah. yeah. You're definitely right about that. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Is you know. Uh, you, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but like his sort of like final one of the big revelation moments, um, he has this line where he says something like, um, he says something like, uh, no matter what happens tomorrow or for the rest of my life, I'm happy now because I love you. Right? Yeah. Um, the movie's I think very very interested in the I love you as sort of the triggering phrase and her saying she's happy too. But to me, the thing that's that really like unlocks him from this prison basically is him saying I'm happy now not the I love you part it's the I'm happy right. now part right he's just never been happy before <laughs> and he has found this way that joining a community working with others but also nurturing things within himself that he likes about himself has made him happy 
Um, And that's the thing that really like unlocks it. Um, You know, so I think any sort of uh, if you really do have to like ignore, not ignore, but you really have to contextualize the romantic comedy sides of this movie (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and compartmentalize them away from sort of like the really deep philosophical and spiritual stuff you can take out of this movie. Um, Yeah. Because it is again, it's a it's very tropey. It's very like genre y, you know, like their first kiss as the snow comes down, which is very pleasing <laughs> to me as like a a simple movie watcher. I love just yeah. like simple good movies, and that it works so so well in that context. But then you have all this other stuff going on that just rewards any kind of um uh you know any kind of application or any kind of scrutiny, any kind of use that you would like to take from it. Right. Right. And and I really, one thing I really love about the final day at the start yeah. is that, you know, if if the groundhog metaphor is obviously the most blatant thing here. So it's, and right. groundhog day, if the groundhog sees his shadow, that means longer winter. If he doesn't see his shadow, it's a short winter. Right. Um so and everybody in, boos when they find out there's going to be a longer winter, yeah, right? In yeah. some of the earlier takes, everybody's really angry when they find right, out right. it's going to be a long winter, right? Anyway, but, <laughs> but after after Phil, our character has has seen his shadow, has, right. and whatever that is, whether it be the young youngian shadow self, or just recognizing the darkness within himself, or or recognizing how he's been affecting the world, or recognizing how his egotism has made him bad. Right, uh, as opposed to how his egotism uh, could be harnessed for that's right <laughs> for betterment of others. He has seen um, he has seen the yeah. version of himself he doesn't want to be, and right. has found the version of himself he's decided he does want to be. And it is that point where he quotes Chekhov. When Chekhov saw the long winter, he saw a winter bleak and dark and bereft of hope. Yet we know that winter is just another step in the cycle of life. But standing here among the people of Punxsutawney and basking in the warmth of their hearths and hearts. I couldn't imagine a better fate than a long and lustrous winter. Yeah, it's so right. good. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Right. It is yeah. Really great. <laughs> like, the realization that it's not the winter, it's like the, ex- the way you experience it that is creating right. this bad kind of context for yourself yeah there's a that's another really great moment in the movie and yeah. you're right that is on the last day you know that the i've i've thought a, i'm gonna do this one day do like a diagram of the sections of this movie but i've thought a lot about sections of this movie and how much time is spent doing each thing yeah you know and like a lot of time is spent on the first day and a lot of time is spent on the last day and you know, maybe it would be an interesting short film to show just the first day and just the last day, right? And, you know, in these, like, bookends, um, yeah. the movie really spends a lot of time um, fleshing out what's happening on those days. And those little touches, you know, of things like how his perspective has changed from winter sucks, the snow is falling everywhere, the cold water into, like, yeah, that's fine. I actually do love this winter now. I've experienced it enough. I've made my peace with it. I've come to embrace it. Um, just through repetition, essentially, um, is really just a succinct kind of statement of, of the power of the experience he's had in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. So good. I love this movie. <laughs> I also love this movie. Yeah. Uh, I know. I have uh, I have decided not to do the marathon this year. Uh, I've just yeah. got some other things going on, and... Uh, and I keep uh, I keep questioning that decision. <laughs> I know. I for for like one afternoon, I was sitting at work looking at flights to Columbus for that weekend, <laughs> and then I googled around, and there's no one doing it in New York. You know. Yeah. Um. I I decided it's probably not going to work this year, but you know, sometime in the future. You know, it's um, it really is. You know, it's uh one of those things that. On at first glance, you can really look at it as like you have to go through this grueling and challenging thing. But when you get through it, you like come out, uh, yeah. you know, as like transformed or having had this unique experience or bonded with everybody. Um, maybe one of the messages of Groundhog Day is that interpreting your experience as being difficult and grueling and and uh, unbearable is step one. You know, yeah. And acceptance is step 
10, but there's all these steps in between right. that are like mu- like multiple steps of acceptance, enjoyment, fondness, bonding that are happening in pieces throughout that whole process, you know, like yeah. they talk about like trauma bonding and stuff like that, you know, um, there's this other thing that happens that's not just trauma bonding, it's just like latching yourself to other people and delighting in sort of whatever it is that's happening along with these other people. Um, that's so much more interesting than just like, oh, this was such a bad experience, but we did it together, so we're yeah. a team. Um, there's something much more interesting happening. It's really something special. It's also not really that bad of an experience. It's not. <laughs> this is the other thing is I didn't, I never, the only time I ever found it difficult was I literally got sick halfway through one year and right. had to leave. Right. Beyond that, I've never found it to be a very difficult thing to just watch this movie 12 times. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun, <Yeah>. you know? <laughs> I, I will say, and perhaps this, uh, this is indicative of something uh, uh, bad within myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons I decided not to do it this year was the realization that I have been, had trouble using the free tickets that you get from doing this. I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the fact that the reward would have been useless to me uh, made me not want to do it. That doesn't make you a bad person, but it does mean you haven't necessarily internalized the message of Groundhog Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, <laughs> that's very funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, thank you, thank you so much, Stephen, for uh, for talking with me today. It's, uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, to it's do been this. Great. It's been great. I I don't. Uh, as I said, I think some people might be surprised to hear that I am on a a religion focused <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this has been really, you know, uh, no, really I, great. When uh, when you said you wanted to talk about this, when I was in the very early stages, eh, planning stages of this, I very much wanted you to be episode two. In fact, episode one and episode two are exactly what I wanted nice. to happen uh, because I want, you know, I want to talk about religious experience in film the way I've been talking about them, but I also don't want to, you know, it, there was a, there was a lot of back and forth on, on religion and, and philosophy and, and what, what, what exactly I'm going for here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and one thing I want to go for here is, is not, not to label atheism or agnosticism as a religion themselves. I don't think that's fair or accurate of, you know, the rejection, the rejection of belief right. is not, it's not a belief structure itself. I think it's that's not, right. Yeah. But um, atheism or agnosticism is definitely about belief, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, tangential and maybe even important yeah. to a discussion right. of belief, right? Right. And uh, and it's possible to have a, a movie be religiously significant uh, in the way we've talked about uh, Groundhog right. Day today or in a way where where you said, I saw this movie and that's what made me leave my faith, you know, and I want, I want to be open to that conversation as well. So I wanted you to be number two, just so that we can, we can establish sort of ground rules for what's going on. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. uh, Yeah, definitely. I'm, 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 I, it's very rare to find sort of informed and committed religious people and religious spaces that are open to talking with other people in a, a, about their sort of leaving religion experiences or yeah. their bad religion experiences that isn't I've just you know I am I am not here to say anything bad about Judaism I'm here yeah. to only say that is my experience so I can't say anything about any other religions right. but I will say in Judaism it is a huge red flag when somebody writes to you who is Jewish and says I would love to hear more about your experience, you know, with with Judaism and sort of why you're not up. That's a huge red flag. Yeah, you know, there. Uh, you know that either the first coffee visit or the third coffee visit or the fifth, they're going to say, "Well, please come to a Friday night dinner at my house." You right. may like it now. It may right. be fun, and then maybe you'll want to date this girl that I know, <laughs> and maybe you'll want to come to some services. Right? You know. Maybe I'd be open to that stuff, but I'm also not going to get tricked into it. And so right. it's very nice to see a place where there's no tricks. It's just it's a, a place where we yeah. can talk. And I re- it's been really nice to talk. I really yeah. appreciate it. All right. Well, I appreciate having you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for listening to Cinema Credo. We'll see you next month. Strength and mercy for me And from me every day Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Cinema Credo, Conversations on Film and Faith. I'm your host and writer, Adam Glass. Film clips this week are used under fair use. Thank you to Steve Richter for the use of our theme song, Madrasita, off of his album, Beloved. Check out his work at steverichter.com. That's S-T-E-E-V-R-I-C-H-T-E-R.com. Thank you.